great economist John Maynard Keynes once wrote of the foolish things a man thinking alone can come temporarily to believe. Fortunately, I did not have to think alone. And neither do we. Welcome to Cetris Never Paribus, the History of Economic Thought podcast, where all other things are never equal. Let's get going then, yeah? You ready? Yeah. Okay, cool. Yeah. cool. So, hello Cleo, thanks for joining me today. Um, it's a real honor, especially um, as I get to interview you. Perhaps I'm the first one to interview as now, you know, freshly minted professor. So I'm um, feeling especially excited about this interview. I'd like us to start with you presenting yourself. That's all right. Uh, yes. Uh, so thank you for having me first. Um, so my name is Cleo Chassan-Rizaigouche, and I'm an assistant professor at the University of Bologna in Italy. I work mainly on the history of labor um, economics, uh, um, but um, yeah, not only. Um, I'm an historian of economics, basically, so I'm interested in um, a lot of stuff. <laughs> Wonderful. Okay, so I asked you to come on our podcast to talk about your um, book project. So could you tell us a little bit about what you're planning to write about? So this is a long project I had, uh, and it's on the history of the economics of discrimination, which is which was the subject of my PhD that I finished in Paris um, some times ago already. Um, but I did uh, what I did in my PhD was really um, an analytical history of the different models of the the economics of discrimination. So, which is this very specific approach um, to be short the neoclassical approach to discrimination um, that uh, was um, started by Gary Becker. Um, so, I did my PhD on. Uh, uh, the opening of the field by Becker, uh, additional model that were created in the 70s, uh, and um, uh, measurement of discrimination debates that happened in the 70s and, and night, um, 80s. And so the book backbone is, is still the same material, uh, but I want to tell a different story. Um, I want to tell a story which is about uh, what happened before um, and what was really new about uh, Becker or what did this change really? I want to talk about the people I didn't talk about in my PhD who happened to be uh, not white, not men, uh, but do happen to be economists working on discrimination. So it's also um, uh, a story about the people I, I uh, invisibilized in my PhD um and it's also a story about um what what is it that people have done with this knowledge so it's it's about economic knowledge on discrimination and how it was used uh in court in federal agencies um especially in the US uh, but I think I will also add uh, uh some element on the diffusion of those uh models and um, also, uh, stylized fact like the wage gap of England is um, uh, beyond the US, especially because of the specific status of American economics in the history of economics more generally. 
but also because uh, there were an interesting crossover. So it's basically my PhD um, broader uh, with slightly different question about the use of the economics of, of discrimination. Um, so how did you fall onto this topic in your PhD? That is an um, interesting question, and I actually have a weird answer to it, uh, which is because of my PhD supervisor. So I wanted to, I, I don't actually know if you know that, which is interesting. I wanted to work on India. I wanted to do a PhD on affirmative action in India and how um, uh, demand for more affirmative action were framed in sort of market term. So there was this um, uh, things called uh, the demand for disadvantage. So sort of organized demand from certain group who wanted to be um, lower in the scale of caste in order to um, have more quota uh, in some specific political uh, setting. I still I, I didn't research on that, so I'm not sure this was exactly how it it was the case or it's still the case, but I wanted to work on that in relation to theory of justice um, in between economics, basically, and representation and the theory of uh, voting and things like this. And uh, my supervisor just said, you know, Gary Becker? And uh, there is this uh, things on discrimination, which is a sort of economic analysis of discrimination in general. Um, and so I went, read it, uh, and she was like, you could do uh, your PhD on that. Uh, I happen to have done mine on Baker too, so that would be fitting. And there is no nothing in the history of economics on that subject. So that's how I pick up the, the economics of discrimination. It was not completely by chance because it was related to also other interests I had um, about, um, um, yeah, basically political identities um, um, after, yeah, you know, class, race, um, uh, gender, and how this was uh, um, changing the way social science were, um, uh, yeah, doing stuff. So that was not completely related, but the specific uh, uh, topic was uh, basically given by uh, um, Annie Cott. Mm -hmm. I like that um the rest is history it's funny because I I <laughs> I would also say that my topic was definitely related to my interests but it it was um it was my supervisor who got me to read the first text by the first text I read by an Indian economist um for mm -hmm. other for another kind of slightly different reason than the the question I eventually ended up with um that's why supervisors are important huh <laughs> Exactly. That's why we're doing an episode on supervision. <laughs> I think this is uh, it's really it's really important. And I because I don't think it's like we we could say oh it's a bit sometimes a bit sad that PhD students are kind of channeled into what it is their supervisor wants them to do. But I think I mean I I when I heard you speaking I didn't it didn't sound like it was something negative right it was it was a positive experience that you ended up oh, that right yeah no and she, she really didn't impose something. So when I say she, she did a PhD on uh, neo-utilitarianism, and so there was, she knew um, uh, Gary Becker very well, 
uh, she knew this work on discrimination, but she didn't write on this especially. Um, and but she was knowledgeable in uh, the history of American economics. But she really just put those sources. I think that was the main thing she did. She did. She put the sources like in my hand, and then and then I did what I could have said. No, I could have said um, something else. It it was just very fitting, and I think we I have been. Uh, she have seen me in class for like in the master for a year. She knew me a little bit. Uh, so I guess the supervisor here was really um, an M. Uh, yeah giving a bit of more structure in relation to the PhD, the field I was supposed to have a PhD in, uh, giving some sources and direction, and then I could choose to take this road or another. And I actually was very free in, in, in my PhD to choose any road. The only thing I was, because I was in a department of economics, it has to be uh, more analytical than uh, completely contextual. It didn't mean that I, there was no context in my PhD, uh, but I was, it was really much on the, on modelization, for example. I didn't talk that much about, um, uh, a theodox theory of discrimination, but it also because in a PhD, you have to choose. So she was also there to, um, help me channel things. And I think it was a very good exercise. And I think the book is something very different. And it's a bit scary in the sense that, uh, you don't have anyone telling you where you should start, where you should stop. You don't have the constraint uh, even of the um, review process. You have a bit of review, but you don't have, you know, um, uh, the person telling you, oh, you should get that because this doesn't work. You should do a review of literature this way. Uh, you have more freedom, uh, uh, which is more scary. Yeah. And I, and I guess uh, I think there that's why it's really important to share your work even before you feel like it's shareable <laughs> um because yeah. that's when you that's when you get direction right I mean that's why we have we've set up our little group where we meet and we 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 send each other chapters I think that's super important I will say depending on where you end up publishing um this book you know your editor might be really helpful um yeah. or, or not i mean that that depends on how much time they have uh, how 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 engaged they want to be i mean that that really depends but i think that there but then but then ultimately you have to make the decision right and that's that's what i found really scary is that you yeah. you have to you have to decide eventually what it is you want to do and then you may have to also um argue why you made this choice to a you know, a reviewer or an editor or, yeah. Hmm. But it's, yeah, so I think, again, I love this idea to have several interlocutor. Uh, why, I mean, during your PhD, you also have different interlocutor. I think it's not a good idea to only have your supervisor. Um, uh, yeah. And I think uh, I did my PhD in a context where there was a lot of collective talk about what goes in an article, what goes in a PhD. Um I think what I find challenging for the book is like, and I think this is the main thing we discuss in our little group uh, of uh, people writing books. Uh, it's really, I'm going to test that. What's your reaction? And because we trust each other, but we also know that we may have some different taste. So I think there is um, some people end up saying, yeah, but I, I'm going to do it anyway. <laughs> 
or it it also help you choose what you really care about what you really want to stay here in the book uh to stay in the book and what do you think oh yeah maybe there i need a bit more fine tuning of the of the concept or more explanation because people are not in my head um so i i, I think this um a bit like ping pong and uh and i think the the workshop is really useful i thought about my editor as uh moral and emotional support <laughs> in the sense that um uh, like oh yeah this is great uh this is amazing love it uh but maybe when he will actually read more um chapter it will be become something different um and uh and and yeah i i think so so far Uh, I have uh, uh, material for several chapters. I have, um, uh, yeah, a lot of things. But I, I started by something I never dared to do in a paper, which is uh, starting by literature, uh, by a novel, and discussing a novel and uh, in the context of the time and the sort of uh, knowledge that goes in this in this book and... I think this was very freeing for me to just decide, yeah, I decide this makes sense in the context of this of discrimination, um, uh, its history and its relation to how social scientists have, have studied and tried to um, uh, fight it, to be honest, because most uh, scientists who study discrimination um, before Becker <laughs> thought it was a, a phenomenon that has to be eliminated. Uh, and this was a bit of a shift when um, uh, some people think it was uh, it was going to be eliminated by itself. Uh, but the idea was wrong in itself. Yeah, uh, shifted a little bit. So I, I, I think being able to choose my my sources in that way was very freeing. Now I have to do the ping pong with it and see if it actually works. Um, but that's, yeah, that's interesting. And it's not freeing in the sense of less, const less, uh, constraint on the quality. Uh, I think it's less constraint on the sort of exercise that it is. Uh, writing a paper is a bit different. Uh, you are, um, aiming at a different audience. There is things you don't explain because it's a specialized audience. Uh, I want to write a book for, um, that's my, Uh, uh, family can read uh, for that it has to be translated in French but yeah I I, I want a book that is not uh, especially wider wide public but that actually yeah it makes sense uh, for people who are not historian of economics um, and who don't read specialized uh, journals yeah and that's good to know before you start writing yeah Yeah, um, but that's the main challenge, I would say. Yeah, probably. I think in a similar kind of vein, I had <clears throat> I started reading like how to write books and how to revise your work and so on because I find it's quite helpful to get tools of how to write because that's the only way, at least that's how I find the only way I can get better. Um, and one of the things I decided quite early on was that I wanted like bite-sized chapters rather than these quite typical, very long chapters and and a shorter book you know i've i've halved my the manuscript from my thesis in my book and um i think i'm i think it will be longer in the end than i had initially planned because maybe i think maybe i've underestimated 
how much, how many words it takes to explain something. But I'm quite glad that I made that decision because it was really difficult to do. You know, I spent probably most of my time deleting words rather than the opposite. But it was that that was quite, as you said, freeing. Like to understand, okay, now this is what I want because I want people actually to feel like they can read it from you know front to end and not feel like they're bored. <laughs> I'll read it. Yeah. Uh, no, they will be bored at parts. So I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna. <laughs> set, I'm not gonna set a an unrealistic goal. But the yeah, that you you have to make choices, and and those it's good to make those choices at the beginning. Yeah. Yeah, and I think it's also. I want also a short book. Uh, I want short chapter that could be read sort of autonomous autonomously, like a chapter um, as a self-contained one. Um, there is quite a bit of planning on on this, and I don't know how it will end up. Um, but it's also, I think, uh, a way for me. I think uh, I, I'm not writing a book for specialists. Uh, I'm, so, so that's something I decided quite late because right after my PhD, I had a proposal for a contract, and that would have been basically publishing my PhD. Um, and I decided why I would do that. Uh, because I had to publish article for the for for the publishing um, um, how do you say race <laughs> to get a job, uh, but um, but yeah for the book thing because and I think this is wrong but because book doesn't really count the same way as a, as article uh, then then it, I didn't take it as like something that would count for my career in this in the direct way so i i wanted yeah that's also why i choose to yeah let's write uh, for 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 other people and also i think the subject uh, discrimination in the history of economic thought is also a subject that could appeal to a wider audience um uh in general just because um of its actual actuality its urgency uh but also um yeah it's 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 a subjects that have been studied by different discipline uh some people have previous knowledge about what is supposed to be discrimination so they're not it's not like completely it's not the book on externality for example or something that is directly uh economic knowledge and so have a certain uh uh, uh signal of certain things also externality i think is also a very interesting concept but that's something else the next thing i wanted to ask you is about what what was the thing What's the thing that surprised you the most during doing this research? Um, for, for the book especially or for the, the research on discrimination in general? In, in general. Um, how biased I was, which is ironic for someone working on discrimination and bias. Uh, in general uh, and I think it was not surprising like oh my god it was just a gradual process of realizing how biased I was so what was the go-to what was the um, uh, uh, in the end the, the, the main narrative uh, um, and so that's why I think there is there will be a, a, a distance between the thesis uh, the PhD thesis and the book because it's also a story about me realizing how did I choose my sources? Where did I look at? Uh, 
And so in the in the book, for example, I think there will be at least one chapter, but I'm not sure on Phyllis Wallace, uh, who is this African-American uh, woman economist, uh, was the first um, uh, black woman, I think, tenured at MIT, um, who did an, a lot of work uh, on discrimination, uh, but not in the form of like, you know, the one the one paper in the uh, American Economic Review that opened the field by doing these models and then everyone discussed this model. She did very different type of work that included a lot of expertise, a lot of uh, um, uh, theory too on discrimination, but scattered in other type of publication. She didn't write this one book uh, uh, that was discussed in academia. Uh, she also have a less linear career um, and so she will be much more prominent, for example, in the book than than in the thesis. She's not in the thesis, so that would be easy to 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 see the difference. Um, and I think for me it was really uh, because I was doing something different in the, in the PhD. I was talking about uh, standard theory, uh, sort of the textbook story about uh, the economics of discrimination, but now I had another story to tell. Uh, uh, it doesn't mean that there will not be the textbook story, why, why we end up with this model in the textbook, uh, but there will be other stuff. And I think it was surprising to me to realize the extent of automatism uh, uh, of um, judging sources differently just because of the status of who write it, just because of the way you find them, find the the, um, the sources. I was doing a lot of snowballing. You know, you read a paper, you read the reference of the paper, and and then you end up in a silo. Uh, but I also ended up, I think, uh, after my PhD, I realized like, oh, what was theory? You know, I, I had preconception of uh, what is a good theory, what is a High, you know, when we say years of high theory, for example, is something I've thought a lot about. Um, and uh, the different status of work, like empirical work versus uh, uh, theoretical work. And so I realized I had a lot of uh, uh, judgment, uh, preconception, uh, rather than just, uh, you know, starting all over again about, okay, how economists thought about discrimination in the post-war period. Um, and and start from there and and following leads that I excluded just because of the view of the present. Like I didn't want to see many things in industrial relation because it became quite a paradox in terms of uh, what labor economics became. I'm gonna go much more in in this direction. Um, I think now. Um, so yeah, how how biased I I, I was in my choices uh, of sources. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a, I like that. It is very ironic. I like that answer. <laughs> so what what has not surprised you doing this research and you think is important for the world to know? Okay, so we know that there is a criticism of standard economics, which is about reducing everything to market mechanism. We know that. It's not surprising. Um, what I think... So it was not surprising to see that standard analysis of discrimination was reducing the phenomena to a specific economic phenomena that could be measured. Um, and I think it was not surprising, but still we need a description of that and and uh, of how it works. And for me, 
what is the consequences, uh, what are the consequences of this? And in the case of discrimination, um, you have the building of an entire field that is reducing discrimination, um, not only conceptually, but in terms of measurement, you really always try to reduce the amount that is actually attributed to discrimination by explaining away by other type of factor that you can better measure. So basically, uh, the, the, the empirical story about discrimination is how you could be really, really, really sure that this is discrimination and not, you know, choices or other difference that you got measured. So there is statistical method to do that. There is also, of course, over the years, um, uh, uh, improvement in the data available. And so this is not surprising, but then on on the, the, the uh, period of time I'm looking at, then you end up with a very, very narrow conception of discrimination that doesn't really cover what was initially why I think people start working on discrimination. And so at the end of my period, which is now, you have um, some review article on discrimination uh, in the jail, for example, saying, oh, maybe we should look at sociology in order to be able to, um, you know, capture the bigger phenomenon of uh, systemic discrimination, for example. Or, oh, we have those uh, methods in economics, but maybe we should look at psychology uh, to, in order to be able to uh, capture more bias, you know, at the micro level. Uh, oh, and there is this phenomenon of group at the level that have macro consequences for, for you know, the labor market for this particular uh, segment of the population. And so you end up with this, uh, the big question not even being assessed with the methods that have been de defining the, the standard approach to discrimination. So it's not surprising to say that the economics of discrimination have narrowed the phenomena, but and it's not surprising to say that the big question about the causes of discrimination, the, the, the quantification of the effect at the level of society, not at the level of individual, is still need to be bridged. Um, and for example, the concept of systemic discrimination is something that is really uh, fit uneasy uh, in, in the discipline because we don't have a general equilibrium theory of discrimination in all market, for example. Uh, there is no... Um, uh, there is bits of it. There is discrimination in education, discrimination on the labor market, or uh, and that can be divided in um, when you go in employment or uh, wage discrimination, which is when you are in employment. But like the, the big picture. Um, and so I hope the book uh, uh, will take the reader on this journey. Uh, and on this journey of narrowing discrimination, <laughs> On the other road, not taken, there were people like feminist economists, like heterodox saying, hey, there is the big picture, but they were not, you know, the criticism didn't really completely change uh, the core of the discipline. Uh, and I think today we are in a moment where there is like some of those voices uh, becoming to be heard, uh, uh, but in a different way. Um, so basically, yeah, it's not surprising that I end up doing um, uh, a criticism of the standard approach for its narrowness. But I would like to talk about the consequences of that, consequences that economists themselves can hear uh, and are starting to recognize about, um, okay, but what, what do we do from now? Um, so that's the big picture. Yeah, and the people need and to understand to... perhaps what, 
like how has it narrowed the idea of discrimination what what yeah. things are left out yeah. and and concretely i think there is explanation that are based on methodolic on choices that have been made by economists and there is also just you know past dependency to question that have been asked in a certain way that trans that were um, um, answered using certain tools and then become this sort of routine of doing this type of measurement. And so it's not completely explicit that they're making again the choice of the definition of the contour of the measurement. It's just picking something else. Um, yeah. And I think this description is important to, to, to give in order to understand uh, why we get there. Thank you. This is going to be such a great book. I'm so excited to um, start <laughs> reading snippets of it in our wonderful um, workshop, um, but also to see it published one day, which I'm, I'm sure it will be <clears throat> in due time. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode enough to come back for more. The featured music is called Knowing Nothing by Midair Machine and our intro features Paul Krugman at his Nobel Prize banquet speech in 2008. Thank you to Noble Media AB for giving us the permission to use the audio. Check out our website cetrusneverparabus.net for more information. Follow us on Twitter cetrusnparabus and listen to more episodes on iTunes or your favourite podcast app.